0: Welcome to Sports Lit, I'm Neil Acharya and I'm Nate Sager. The appetite for hockey in this country is insatiable. The game is mined for everything it's worth. Say of that what you will, but it drives people to find more to explore, more to unearth. Look at the wide array of titles in this book season alone. Female hockey players are front and centre, Sammy Joe Small has a memoir that's out and Manon Rae a children's book. There's, there's bios of Serge Savard and Rick Vive, and also a hard-hitting expose on the long-lasting impact of head trauma in the NHL through the tale of Joe Murphy, as written by Rick Westhead of TSN. Very few countries, if any at all, besides Canada, is where you will find a market for all of this. People love the game, in spite of the fact that people love the game is hammered into us at every possible opportunity, through media ads and billboards. And one of those people, happens to have a prominent role as an anchor on Sportsnet. Ken Reed loves the game, and he gets it. He is a purist, and the kind of guy that me and you, Nate, can relate to.
1: Yeah, note the time and place. Neil Acharya said, I related to another, well to another human being. It's another first in 2020. <laughs>
0: uh, a person, Ken, is a person that will wonder about the one guy, like us, he saw in a mid-season weeknight game way back when, and then scour the internet to find out what happened to him. Did he really score that goal? Did he really get into that fight or set up that play that one night a long, long time ago? At his release party for Dennis Baruch, the story of Hockey's Forgotten 60 Goal Man, which was the first Sports Lit episode in season one, he said at the, at the party, and I, I will paraphrase, paraphrase, I'm not a writer. Steven Brunt is a writer. I'm just a guy that loves the game and tells people stories. So back to mining, Ken will be the first to tell you he isn't trying to be Skip Hollinsworth or Wright Thompson. Ken finds the stuff he is interested in and tells it, simple, and the recipe makes for a serving of authenticity. And the thousands across the country just like him that eat this stuff up. Yep, if you're mining for hockey as we do in Canada, there are nuggets to be found. And he is back with 39 more in One to Remember, 39 members of the NHL One Goal Club. Ken was our first guest, as I mentioned, back in October 2017, and we were pleased to have him back for a record fourth time, one appearance in each season so far, and it'll be appropriate to, to let Reed close this one out. He is the Regis to our Letterman, but in this pandemic ad- edition, he will join us for the first time via telephone. Nate, uh, what are some of the other books he's written?
1: Oh, well, let's see. You mentioned the Dennis Marook biography back... Or- premier back in season 1 I guess in baseball terms Ken was our opener that year and these our closer this year he came on in season 2 for hockey card stories 2 season 3 episode 5 for Eddie Shack and then his other two books that you know predate predate us starting the podcast of course were your first hockey card stories and of course one night only which is uh, was guys who played one game in the NHL in one game only so uh, the- now, the theme of Ken's new book, I think, is uh, these former hockey players who are glad they got what they did out of the game. And, you know, boy, oh, boy, is- does that ever seem like a- an apt lesson in in 2020 when the necessities of the before times now have become luxuries? I think Ken has done a heck of a job presenting all these vignettes of uh, hockey lives. And it's sort of structured in a way that shows all the different paths toward playing in the National Hockey League and the, maybe the place it comes to occupy in one's later life. Because, you know, Ken's got the guys in there who were organizational so- soldiers who toiled away for years in minor pro. And then he's got the guy who had, you know, the high, high, high potential and team teams invested a first-round draft choice in them, but then it just didn't pan out for whatever reasons. Because, you know, the people who are the best players at age 18 don't always become the best players at age 25 or 30. It's just... The way it happens uh, and like you said you know Ken I think writes for the reader who's a fan of all hockey now I don't want to take this into us versus them framing but you know a lot of fans they only follow you know the big league and their favorite team and that's fine and that tends to be the most uh, reachable market for book publishers but there's you know the smaller group that you know look at the game at many levels you know that fan who you know will, who will once it's medically safe to do so again venture out on a cold winter night to watch a junior or a Canadian university game among a couple thousand or a few hundred diehards. So that group's, uh, they're not few, but they are far between. But, you know, I think Ken has found a common thread in relating the perspective of one goal club members. And I'm not sure if the other big four North American leagues have anything that kind of is like the distinction of scoring just one goal in the NHL. I mean obviously a basketball game has so many scoring events football you know sort you know has that the fat guy touchdown you know when some big behemoth you know 350 pound lineman scores you know on a freak play like tackle eligible pass or falls on a fumble or scoops up a fumble uh you know baseball has national league pitchers hitting home runs hopefully for not much longer universal dh now uh but I don't think that has the same emotional ring to it. It just stands out because someone is doing something that's not in their job description in a team sport that has highly specialized roles. And hockey's not quite as specialized. You know, you know, you just, you know, forwards and defensemen kind of all have the same basic skills, more or less. And any one of the 18 skaters a team dresses for a game can score a goal. But here are the guys whose first NHL goal also turned out to be their last. So, you know imagine, you know, doing something Swedish without knowing it would be the finish and that makes the the uh, interesting angle for Ken Reed's latest book, Neil. Agreed. Now, let's get some pucks in deep with the man himself after this break.
0: And we're back on Sports Lit and yes, we have Ken Reed. Uh, One to remember is the book and of course um, off the top. I didn't mention the release date. It was mid-September So it's been out uh, for a little while um, and we're going to talk about it right before the holiday break uh, So some of you out there can still pick it up. Um, I Want to know Ken uh, in making this book and writing this book was there one player one player in particular that may have piqued your curiosity to pursue pursue this kind of compilation one player that had the one goal
2: yeah, I guess so. Yeah, when I when I first uh, looked down the list, uh, a few names jumped out to me. Uh, one that jumped out to me uh, was uh, Frank Beaton, who was a notorious tough guy in the 70s. Played in the North American League, played in a bunch of leagues, played in the uh, WHA and in the NHL. Uh, he's kind of a legendary guy. If you talk to anybody from the 70s, they most, they most likely have a Frank Beaton story. So Frank, he was in there. Dennis Bondy was in there he's from my neck of the woods and Dennis is the most penalized player in pro hockey history so I knew I had to take, talk to Dennis and also when I saw this guy's name pop up I knew I had to talk to him and that was Dave Hanson one of the Hanson brothers <laughs> from Slapshot he actually scored a single NHL goal so I knew I had to talk to Dave uh, luckily my buddy Colby Armstrong who lives in Pittsburgh now actually works out with Dave and his son Christian so that was an easy contact to get but Dave was wonderful to have in the book and just a super nice guy who just just loved the game so I was thrilled to get Dave in there. So
0: some of the tough guys uh, may have been the catalyst and they are in the uh, in chapter 12 toughies where, with Dennis Bonvi, Frank Beaton and Chris McCrae and is it uh, Rob uh Skrlack
2: am I pronouncing that? Right? Yeah, Rob Skrlack. Yeah. Yeah, you know me, I like my hockey fights right guys? I had to get <laughs>
1: that in there. <laughs> yeah, and, and you don't like none of that stinking up beer.
2: No, I don't like Rick Bear. And, yeah, I like my hockey old school. So when I saw all these tough guys on the one goal list, I, I wanted to talk to the tough guys because, I mean, these are what's, what's special about the tough guy, and I think that what's made the tough guy who makes it all the way to the NHL special for fans is they're relatable because mm-hmm. they're hardworking guys. They, they appeal to the guy who goes to his job every day and just does it and doesn't get a lot of glory for it. Uh, they're relatable in the sense that they didn't think they'd make it to the NHL, and neither did we as normal people, as normal fans. So there's guys in the book that were first-round picks, and, and you know, they ended up with one goal, and they kind of said, geez, how did that happen? Why did I only get one? And then, then there's guys who were tough guys and fought their way into the league, and they go, wow, I got one. You know, so there's, there's different ways to look at one goal.
0: There, there's all the, the tough guys too. I mean, if you're ever you know in the scrum, a media scrum uh, after a game or before a game, a lot of times the tough guys are actually the the nicest guys. I, I think mm-hmm. back to to my time, uh, the occasional time when I was in the Leafs room and Fraser McLaren. You know, uh, probably one of the yeah. nicest people there. And I think uh, the reason I bring it up uh, is because I think a lot of people who you know casual fans of the game may not know that.
2: Right, and. Uh Brad May put it into great perspective for me once. He said, "Of course, we're the nicest guys. It takes a nice guy to stand up for the other nineteen guys on the bench." And mm-hmm. I never thought about it that way. And I was, when I first started covering hockey and going into the rooms, I I was the same as you, Neil. I thought the tough guys were going to be these mean fellows, but they're the nicest guys because it takes a special guy to go, "Okay, I'm going to stand up for you and I'm going to take a punch in the face for you." Mm-hmm. Not a lot of mean, mean guys might go start a fight, right? Whereas a tough guy will go, "Okay." I took care of you. I'm going to take care of him. I'll take a couple swats in the face for you. That takes a special person, a different kind of bravery. Uh, and it, to me, it's a very honorable, honorable position, which, of course, I would like to see more of in the game.
1: And now what was sort of the uh, grand idea behind the way the, the, the book is sort of sorted into sections based on the types of careers uh, players had? Yeah.
2: Well, I guess my first off, my publisher likes chapters, so you got to go with chapters. I mean, the the way I write these books, you guys, you know, you you don't really need chapters, right? Like, I mean, it's 39 different stories, but it's always nice to lump people together into to groups for the for fans. Like, I mean, if you see a tough guys chapter, I think that's a feeling. If you see uh, a first a chapter on first rounds, I think I called it high expectations. You know, there's there's something to be said for that. The goalies obviously go together. But it's an easy read. I mean, you guys know me. I ain't writing War and Peace here. I just use the word ain't. How many authors use the word ain't? So I'm just a dude who writes books, and I think my stories are kind of like if we sat down over a beer and just chatted. And I like to think that that's what you're getting from the player that scored that single goal—is he's sitting with you, having a pop or a coffee, and he's just telling you his story.
1: Yeah. How uh, in terms of uh, your publisher, ECW Press, like. How how much, uh, you know, What's the, what was the collaboration with them like in terms of how, how we're going to market this book?
2: Yeah, they're great. They just kind of let me go. Um, I, I think you guys know I know, uh, given my, I'm lucky through my job that I get to know a lot of people and get a lot of contacts. So a lot of times I'll just pick up the phone and call a buddy and say, hey, do you need a radio spot? Um, Jeff Perlman's one of my favorite writers, and I follow him on Twitter, and he's always says, look, if you write a book, you got to market it. You got to go out on your own. You got to make calls. Uh, for some people, that's, I guess, uh, not the funnest part of the job. Maybe a little. I don't want to use the word not. I don't want to use the word embarrassing, but maybe a little bit of humble pie. You know, to call right. someone and say, Would you like to interview me? As opposed to them calling me and say, Hey, I'd love to have you on the show. Right. So I don't mind. I don't mind asking. Oprah says, If you want something, <laughs> you got to ask for it. So who am I to question Oprah? So <laughs> my marketing, a lot of it just consists of me calling up. Guys like yourselves and saying, Hey, you need somebody on Sportslet? Or I call my buddy Bob Stoffer out in Edmonton and say, Hey, you need somebody on a Watch," lunch? Or, you know, call Savolsky uh, out in Vancouver. Hey, you're desperate for a morning guest? Let me know one morning when somebody somebody drops out. I'm happy to come on. So that's that's kind of what my marketing consists of. Well, well, too- there's no media tour this year, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. So, I mean, was there one planned? Uh, and, uh, or was this kind of all conceived and written knowing that you would have to do phone interviews or Zoom interviews. Yeah, I mean
2: this is this is how I've done most of my book publications anyway. I've never been, uh, I don't sell enough books to go on a big national tour. Like I always say, um, you know, like Berkey's got a book out, Kipper's got a book out, James Duffy, Bob, uh, those guys are the rock stars of the industry, that's like a KISS concert. They just go from town to town, you know, pyro effects and stuff like that. and i'm kind of like the folk music magician who's in the coffee shop (laughs) uh i I really hope you like what i have to offer i know i'm not going to sell a million copies but i know the ones i sell um they tend to be well liked and i I really appreciate anybody who who takes the time to buy a book not just my book but anybody's books because uh books aren't you know we all walk around with these little devices in our hands so i i think taking the time to write read a book is a special thing so yeah my My marketing plan uh, for this book's been very much the same as as the other ones. Uh, The only difference is I haven't done – I usually do quite a few book signings around the Toronto area. Right. And I have not done that because of COVID. So that, that was a big difference.
0: You know, I'll tell you one thing. and we, we talked about this in in our intro. That you are like our. You, this is the fourth time every season you've been on our, our podcast. You are the Regis Philbin to our David Letterman. So <laughs> I will when that's you were. This is that's all a huge <laughs> honor. Well, it's an honor for us. And you, even though this is the first time you haven't been in studio with us, once you can be again, once this is pandemic is all done, we will try and arrange some some uh, fireworks or something to to have you in here and uh, make it like a rock star experience. Um,
2: <laughs> Sweet, I, I, I love that because I love Motley Crue and Kiss and all that yeah. stuff, I love those big shows. Well, I, I
0: want to ask you, just just quickly going back to the book, if, is, is, is there one player in this book that you, and I? A reason I ask you this is because I think I know that there is an answer, And is there one player in this mm-hmm. book that you would trade places for to score that one goal?
2: I think all 39 of them, yeah. Oh, yeah? Um, I'm just a dreamer, man. I I you guys know me, I I write these books because I'm curious about what it's like to make it to that level that as the kid who played midget C in high school hockey dreamed of. I'm like when I play road hockey with my kids I still kinda <laughs> you know, I and I think a lot of people in their minds still think they're scoring in the NHL or have fantasized it about at some point. Right. So and- for me, um Yeah, they're they're all great stories. It's I I look at it as a fantastic accomplishment to score even one goal in the National Hockey League. I guess if there was one guy I'd trade spaces with, it would be Dave Hanson, right? Because he got to be in slap shot and hang out with Paul Newman. So I think that's pretty cool.
0: You know, first of all, who were you thinking? Well, you answered my set my follow up already because uh, about you know this kind of realizing what you know a childhood dream. So that I thank you for. But I was thinking it'd be Mike Forbes because he got Gretzky and Curry. To, That's true. Uh, and you're a, you're obviously a huge Gretzky guy. So I, I thought you'd you. I actually thought that this was the the catalyst for the book. You saw that Mike Forbes had had, had scored this one goal, and it was from Gretzky and Curry. Mm-hmm. And hey, why not make a book? So,
2: yeah, you know what? Well, it's funny when I look down the list of one goal scorers, and there's around 350, 400 guys. You know, there's tons of names I didn't know, obviously. And, and when I get to Mike Forbes, I see Edmonton Oilers 1981, and I go, well, i got to check that out, right? Yeah. And then I see Assisted by Gretzky and Curry, and I just go, I have <laughs> to have this guy in the book. It took me a while to track him down. But it was one of those deals where, oh, my God, I have to have him. And I couldn't find a picture of him on the Oilers. Right. Um, thank goodness for my buddy Andre Bren, who worked in communications with the Oilers at the time. They were nice enough to hook me up with a picture of him. But I can you imagine getting one goal in your NHL career and it's assisted by Wayne Gretzky and Yeri Curry? Uh, I mean, and like Mike told me, he goes, I thought I was going to get another one that night. You know, he was on the power play with Gretzky and Curry, so right. I think that's a pretty awesome story to to be able to tell whomever you want to tell
1: to. Yeah, and how invaluable a resource was Hockey Reference in in doing the research oh. for this?
2: Yeah, Hockey Reference, Hockey DB. Uh, my buddy Steve Fallon at Sportsnet, who's our head stats guy, he can put anything in order for you. So when this idea was trickling around in my head, I went in one night and I said, "Hey Fallon, do you got? Can you give me a list of the of all the guys that score single goal in the NHL?" And Steve's doing other work. He's like, "Yeah, give me ten minutes." <laughs> like, what? And, and then like Steve's amazing. He is the smartest guy at Sportsnet, and he comes back with this list, and I was in heaven because I just started. Devouring it And going through it And no, oh I know that guy Oh my god That guy You know Oh my god You know And who's that guy So it was a, It was a blast So yeah That was That was part of The fun part too Is just finding out Who was on this list And then By calling these guys Just finding out Who exactly they were Because that took me In a, in a lot of different directions I didn't think I'd be going in either.
0: Around when was this? Like, well, did it start with you going to Steve in a certain year? Uh, Steve Fellon? Yeah. You, and when when was that? Is that kind of how the book started?
2: Yeah, I guess it would have been. Well, it was kind of like a loose. It's a loose follow up to One Night Only, right? Those right. Guys, One Night Only is book guys who scored one goal. So One Night Only came out in around 2016. So I, I well, I was writing this book, one to remember when I got the offer to write Eddie Shack's book. Right. So I was kind of right in the middle of this. I'd say this idea probably came up about three years ago. So okay. that's, that's, and you know, I, I was curious to how many guys there were cause I didn't know. And when Felon gave me the list, I said, okay, that's, there's enough guys to cherry pick 39 from that. So yeah, so I was writing this and then I had the offer from Frameworth or Brian Aramworth to write the book with Eddie Shack, And mm. I definitely couldn't say no to that experience. No. So this one, yeah, this one went on hold for six months while I, I wrote Eddie's book and promoted Eddie's book. And then right after uh, Christmas last year, so about 12 months ago, I got right back into finish finishing this one and I had it done by May and the way we went with, uh, is that math right? Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll... There's a lot of math in there two things
0: before i mean, i know nate's jumping in with a question but two things i was going to ask this later on but since we're on topic that you brought up two two names that i was going to ask you about at some point um the first i will say i guess steve fellon you talked about him uh a lot and who he who he is i've worked with steve twice uh as well at the score and at sportsnet so um yeah, yeah to just tell the people why he's so invaluable, kind of what he does at Sportsnet and, and where they may know him from, because I think on Twitter he handles Sportsnet stats, I think.
2: Yeah. Well, Steve's one of those guys that doesn't get any credit, right? right? Whenever people watch TV and they watch the anchor, they either think the anchor's a genius or an idiot, right? You either screw up or you're brilliant. Um, a lot of the times we're neither. We're probably somewhere in between. Now, I like to think I know a lot about hockey, and I know a lot of anchors who do, but when you just hear this weird stat just pop up on the air, or I'll suddenly say, you know, that's the first time that, uh, that uh, you know, Austin Matthews is – that's the first lead to score three in a period since Matt Sundin did it and blah, blah, blah. That's felon. He can get those stuff, those things instantly, those stats instantly. Part of me thinks it's just in his head. And then he looks it up and confirms that He's the smartest sports guy. He's brilliant. And yeah, he runs our sports net stats Twitter account, which is fantastic, and he's funny as hell too, in real life, you know but yeah, he's a beauty, and when I go into work and and you need anything, it's so nice to know when you're when you're on an anchor desk, you're not alone because you got Steve fellon behind you, and you got your directors, your editors, your teleprompter roller, so he's one of the guys that totally makes the place. Role and he's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant in terms of I,
0: sports. I remember in 2019 when the, 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 I think it was game six of the Bruins Leafs uh, was shifted to an afternoon game. And I was fuming mm-hmm. because I knew the Leafs would lose an afternoon playoff game. I, and I think I messaged Steve and I said, you know, I want to know their record, the Leafs record in afternoon playoff games. Like, you guys should do something about that. I don't know how. I, and he's like, oh yeah, we did that already. I, I figured. I was oh like, yeah, he's,
2: yeah, yeah, he's way ahead of everybody <laughs> and everything. It's, yeah, it's, like, when, the good thing about Felon is when you're doing a game, you go in, like, so say the say the Leafs are playing the Habs, we go in armed with a stat pack for that game that Felon and his guys have written up. Hmm. So when I come on, I'm like, okay, they've won seven of their last eight against Toronto, that's that's not me doing that research, that's Steve and his guys, so... I'm extremely thankful to
0: him, and and you do thank him in the book, and also uh, Eddie Shack. You came on December seventeenth of uh, this year, I believe. Oh, yeah. uh, no, sorry, last year. Sorry, and 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 um, yeah, you 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 talked about the experience with Eddie, and obviously since then Eddie has passed on. So I just wanted I know. to. I I mean, we obviously we talked extensively about that, and people can go back and listen to that episode um, if they want to. But just in the time since, I mean. Uh, were, were you aware that when you when you put that book out that Eddie was, was sick? Or, or did that kind of come suddenly? And, 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 yeah, I mean, how did you handle that? Because I mean, after you write a book about a guy and spend that much time in his garage, yeah. I imagine it's it's got to affect you in some way.
2: Yeah, well, we had such a great time together, right? And we just, I mean, Eddie had battled health issues before, but he was rocking and rolling. And then uh, in January he was diagnosed and boom, I mean, the thing can come quick, right? The big C Mm. and it did. And he passed. And that was, uh, it was sudden. Uh, he, you know, he had moments where it looked like he was coming back and moments where it didn't. But, uh, there's a guy that lived his life the way he wanted to live it. And I get to speak to him one final time. And I mean, that was, that was, that was a thrill to get to say goodbye to him. But, uh, yeah, he was a special guy, and it was just like, Eddie made such an impression on so many people, and he always gave them that moment, like when you meet Eddie Shaq, he gives you the moment, he doesn't just, you know, like you'll come away with a story, and he gave me so many moments in the, the time we had together, like, I look back now, and I think, man, what an absolute gift I got to to hang out with, with Eddie Shaq, I mean, how many people would love to do that, so, yeah, it was fast, man, like, and, and what gets me about it is you know he was in Halifax hanging out with my dad and you know he and I were torn around everywhere in Toronto and he was on the road and he he loved getting out, he loved being busy mm-hmm. and that was I don't want to say his last hurrah but it it gave him a, a lot of joy just to be out there again and to be out there consistently making people smile uh, saying what would be deemed by a lot of people as inappropriate <laughs> and politically incorrect but I would deem it as Eddie B and Eddie, and it was almost like it was his way to just kind of get in one final lap. And I, I cherished all the time I had with him. I, I consider myself very lucky, did, and to get to know him and his wife Norma, was, was very special.
0: Did you uh, did you learn anything about marketing going forward uh, through because he <laughs> is a marketing genius?
2: Yeah, I sure did. I learned that you hustle. And it's funny when I was saying, you know, you market these books by calling up and asking, and Eddie was never shy, man. So, yeah, if Eddie would, he'd do anything to make a buck. He loved it. <laughs> he loved he loved the hustle, right? That right. was his thing. I think he got just as much joy out of selling Christmas trees as he did out of playing in the NHL. Mm. Like he he loved just the, the challenge of turning $1 into $2. Right. And he turned $1 into a lot of dollars. Yeah. So, yeah, that was that was a blast. It, just a man who would just was he would do anything for a laugh and he'd do anything to make a buck he was a great fellow
1: now sort of a semi-90 degree turn here there was that article mm-hmm. you had in the toronto star a few days ago about you know having depression and finding help yeah. i just wondered how how accurate is it that you sort of come full circle because the books you've written they really link to the deep interest you developed when you were a teen and you felt Mm -hmm. isolated uh what does that sort of mean to you and and maybe what example do you hope it sets for for people who have a similar struggle with mental health
2: yeah so i was not comfortable for a long time and started a good job telling my story and i like the fact that they they made it about hopefully this will help people because i certainly didn't do it so people would feel bad for me or anything like that but um yeah it's funny you know that's a good point nate because all these guys whose cards i collected and pictures i collected that kind of gave me comfort as a kid. And when I say as a kid, from about 15 years old, 14, 15 years old on. Um, and, yeah, now full circle, I'm interviewing them or doing books with them. It's, it's, it, to me, it's amazing. Like, it's kind of – it is weird because there was that gap in there where, I mean, when I, was, you know, when I was 15, 16, 17, I wasn't going to high school dances. I'd play high school hockey on a Friday night, and a lot of the guys would go out after the game, and I'd go straight home. Um, you know, my buddies would go out on Saturday nights. And I I remember looking out the windows at two of my buddies kind of going out for the night and me sitting in the house going, what's wrong with me? But they just thought I didn't want to come out, right? Because I never did. Hmm. So I would go in my room and I'd look up my sports stats and look at my hockey cards, baseball cards. And now, um, yeah, doing stories on these guys, I find it very uplifting. And to do that story was, uh, in the star was a nice, I don't know. I don't know if it was a like I've spoken openly about my mental health issues before, but never on a platform this huge. Right. So the feedback's been incredible. Um, I can't. I can't believe it. And I'm still saying thank you to people for that. But uh, yeah, I guess it kind of has come full circle because it's funny. I'm I'm doing for a living. It's just kind of an extension of what I did for so much joy as a kid. Right. Hockey gave me so much joy as a kid, and I'm kind of come back to that through storytelling and and storytelling in a lot of cases through old hockey guards, which were things that gave me so much joy. And I don't know how felon knows all his stories, <laughs> but I know all my stories from back hockey guards, So yeah, well, it has kind of come full circle in a way.
0: Um, what i mean i there it did before the 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 story came out uh on saturday i believe it was um you know i did i did notice that there was a kind of a thread of of the mental approach to the game and and and, and how it affected people and and mental effects on people in this book um and yeah. and a couple that struck out to me well one particularly was jason Padolin. he almost yeah. seemed as though he had uh, an imposter syndrome where he almost felt like he didn't believe he should be there even though he'd been great you know you, i mean to get there is something as you as colby writes in the intro and as you've talked about and many mm-hmm. people talk about but um yeah i mean d- did that did that uh, stick out to you cuz it, it's in the in the Definitely. few few pages of, of his story that you know he kind of he didn't feel like he belonged there
2: yeah oh my god absolutely when i was talking to jason i was kind of going oh my god i can relate not on a hockey level but on a personal level and uh yeah he's a first round high pick Traded straight, straight up for kirk muller at one point in time and you know he's told when he gets to try to be at practice tomorrow but he needed more to be told more than that so uh yeah and i i always had the struggle of not feeling like i fit in even you know early in my media career feeling like i didn't fit in right but uh but jason it's funny like he finished his career with one goal and he was, he's one of the guys in the book that thinks he would have should have scored 500 Mm. and that kind of took a toll on him for a while. And, and now his whole career is dedicated to helping kids with the mental side of the game. Right. 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 Yeah. You might have a great set of hands and you can skate, but there's more to that than scoring goals in the NHL. And I know because I had to learn it the hard way, but I'm going to teach you. So hopefully you can learn it the easy way. So it's funny. His one goal, was almost the start of his journey like for a lot of guys it was the top of the mountain for some guys it was whatever for jason it was almost the 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 beginning of this new part of his life that he didn't know he was going to be like a mental skills coach but that's where his one goal led him uh geez for other guys it was into science or or being a doctor or being a hockey scout or a coach or whatever and and for jason it was it was quite a turn and it's, it's actually a Jason's one of my favorite stories in the book. I was actually a guest on his podcast, and mm-hmm. he's, uh, he's, he's got a company called Up My Hockey, and he's just talking to people about, not about tight turns and F1 in the corner followed by F2. He's talking about what goes on between your ears with mm-hmm. the game, which is something that for most guys in this book, wasn't part of the game back then
0: it, it it may be hard to fathom for some people out there but you know there's you know people at the top like yourself or jason padolin or even like let's say heath ledger in hollywood someone that you know knowing that mm. you're kind of everyone sees you at the top but to have that person think hey maybe i shouldn't be there that's that's i mean that's profound i think i don't think a lot of people would, yeah. would ever imagine that
2: um yeah so. everyone's full of doubts i think mm. at some point in their life um i think the more we talk about it, the more we realize that everyone's mm-hmm. kind of going up against something. And no matter what you see on the outside, um, you only see the surface, right? And you don't know what's going on with somebody until they tell you. Right. And for me, everyone just saw the surface for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my parents didn't even know, right? Like, Dad's like, geez, he wasn't in his room that much. And my <laughs> mother was like, yeah, yeah he was. <laughs> and, you know, I had to tell Mom, you know, it's nothing you did. Right. Right like you, no one knows unless you tell them right. so hopefully people that are struggling will just speak up and and tell someone and then uh, that person can point them in the dire- right direction because it's it's great to talk to people and but you know there's professionals out there to help you too uh, i think i used the analogy in the book uh, like a leaky faucet you can try right. to fix it yourself but you should probably call one of their professionals so right. <laughs> get, a, get a pro if you can
1: yeah now yeah yeah that we now about the you know we talked about you know the head part of hockey but but about the body yeah. I know uh, your colleague, Brian Burke, he he wants a shorter regular season, or at least said so in his book, Season 4, Episode 5, by the way. (laughs) And what's striking with me was how many players you spoke to related how a European or a KHL schedule, which is fewer games than the NHL regular season, is Mm -hmm. easier on the body. Is that something we should be, you know, paying a little more attention to in North America? Uh, maybe
2: but I also think over here we're so driven by the buck right so more games here means more gate revenue more TV revenue and the players and the higher salaries I think it uh, saying a fewer games is easier to say when you're done playing <laughs> uh, as an active player you probably want as many games as possible you may not like it some nights on a Tuesday night and <laughs> you know and a rink you don't want to be in but it's contributing to your bottom line but perhaps we should consider it. Yeah. I mean, is it, I'm thinking of a guy like uh, Richie Reguerre or Matt Higgins in the book. And Matt was physically just couldn't handle the NHL, but then went on to play for a number of years in Europe. Uh, Richie Regear in the book. And I'd never knew this was told me he was offered to come back on a one way deal with the flames and just thought, you know what? I'm cool staying in Europe because I'm not getting smashed into the boards every night. <laughs> uh, you could also argue now, I guess that the game isn't as physical as it once was. Uh, so perhaps it's not as punishing, but a hit's a hit. I don't. If there's a hundred in the game or one, and you you're the guy that takes the one, it still hurts. So yeah, I mean, I think fewer regular season games would make for a better product. But I think the argument would, uh, on the other end, would be, well, you have to tell. So, so let's say you cut the schedule by 15 games. So that's what about 17 a percent of an 82 game schedule. I want to do quick math. Players all going to line up for a seventeen and a half percent decrease in salary? (laughs) I don't know. I put that one by them. So there's, uh, it's always comes down to follow the box, follow the money, isn't it?
1: Yeah, for sure. Now, also the way the way you relate the story of uh, Joey Hishon, who came back from yeah. you know serious brain trauma. I was at the game where he got really he got headshotted at the 2011 Memorial Cup. The way what he, happened?
2: Like it must have been silence, was it after he got hit?
1: Oh yeah, yeah for sure. Like and then afterwards it was kind of, like around, at the time. Yeah, it was kind of weird. I just sort of remember the postgame press conference and the coach. Of the Kootenai team, the you know who had whose player you know hit him trying to defend it. Everyone's yeah. like, "Yeah, come on, man!" <laughs> but yeah. the way he sort of came back from that and scored, you know, got his one goal in the NHL, and then you know transitioned into a post-playing career, it reminded me of that ball player John Crock who retired on the spot yeah. when he became a 300 career batter. 20... <laughs> <laughs> like he's just like he wise his...
2: man, John Crock.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Was it what was the story, John Crock? Once was it? What it was that he saw a deer or something while he was in his hot tub and shot the shot <laughs> shot the deer just picked up his hunting rifle and shot the deer while he was hot tubbing. Him. That
2: sounds about right.
1: Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, I, I was just yeah. Sorry, Nick, go ahead. Yeah, I was just just wondering uh how much is it valid to believe that Joey Hishon just wanted to like prove his point that yeah he was a uh, an NHL talent and he just wanted to but he wanted to move on to his next career as quickly as possible without, you know, mm. sustaining any you know, long-term, you know, head trauma.
2: I think you could argue that, and I thanked my buddy Derek right at work for contacting me out with Joey Hish, and Derek did a great TV story on Joey a few years back. But, yeah, I think that there's probably a, a part of him that felt validated that, like, I mean, to come back the way he did was, in, like, incredible. I mean, for 18 months he didn't move, let alone play hockey. You know, you're sitting in a dark room. But I think, yeah, I think in his case, I think it's probably validation, that one goal. And I think maybe more so to to prove that he was in NHL or to prove that he he could do it as a person, right? And not be destroyed by that hit. Uh, Joey's a first-round pick, right? He's a guy that you, when you're watching him in junior, you would have him scoring a lot. But things happen in the game of hockey. But it, yeah, to to come back, it's definite. I think that goal is definite validation for his hockey career uh, and for the mental side, have him saying, you know what, I can I can take a lot and, and still come out shining. And I, I love the picture we use in the book, too, because it's not a picture of Joey's face. It's a picture of him high five and all his teammates. And oftentimes, the goal, a single goal, will mean more to your teammates than it did to, to the player. And I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of Joey's teammates were smiling that night because they knew what he'd been through. And... Joey's a perfect example of that if you look up stats on hockeydb or hockey reference and under goal you see one but you don't see what went into that one goal and what went into his one goal was it was absolutely life altering I would argue
0: in in terms of Matt Higgins um mm-hmm. there, there was a quote uh, that that he a uh, part of a quote the last half of this quote that's, that stood out to me and he says you know, after talking about his injuries, he says, the biggest thing for me was I got a chance. I got 50-some games, but my body was just never really meant for the NHL. So I thought, Mm -hmm. like, at the base level in this book, I mean, how many things can, uh, you know, come together cosmically to make it a lone goal or uh, a lone game or 100 goals or 500 games? It, It just seems to be, you know, in this case, the way Higgins describes it, it's just his lot, I guess.
2: Exactly. Everything has to happen at every certain point for any career to happen the way it does. So it's amazing to me, like, you know, a guy like Matt Higgins, who's a decent sized guy, uh, bigger than a Wayne Gretzky couldn't handle the physical toll, but a Wayne Gretzky could. Right. So what, so Wayne's instinct obviously and be able to force out of the play made a huge difference. Um, look at a guy like Wendell Clark, right? Mm-hmm. Immensely popular for the way he played, but the way he played is going to lead to to back issues, to, to shorten seasons at some point. But if he didn't play that way, he wouldn't have been Wendell Clark, right? Right. So, I mean, if Matt Higgins didn't play the way he did, he wouldn't have been Matt Higgins. Now, Matt still went on to a great career in Europe when it was all over, and he got his chance, as he said. Right. And he got his goal. And, I mean there's so much that goes into just one goal. There's so much that goes into 500 goals. Right. But I think, I think most guys in the book realize that, yeah, this was their lot and that's how it played out. I mean, there's only one Wayne Gretzky, right? Right. There's not everybody's a hall of famer. I mean, there's, you know, there's Danny Galvin, there's Bob Cole, then there's everybody else. Right. So I'm, like the guys in the book i'm just happy i'm part of the everybody else crowd and I'm in them in <laughs> that community and uh, i think a lot of the guys after time realize you know what i'm, I'm part of it and that's still special
0: well and speaking of those guys i just wanted to throw out uh, a few names and i'm glad we kind of covered uh some of the names in the book so far so i'm gonna i'm gonna throw out three more and just basically mention their name and and you can give me something the first thing that comes to your mind about them and yeah uh, okay and i, I you know I, I think we've pounded the Kingston drum a lot here this season, Nate, and uh, because of that, I chose uh, the first guy as Scott Metcalf who uh, played for the Kingston Canadians. So tell me about first, Scott Metcalf.
2: First thought of Scott Metcalf is I met him in 1985 after an Oilers exhibition game in Halifax, Nova Scotia when the Sabres played the Oilers and somehow my mother got my brother and I who were, I think, 12-9 and 9 at the time into a Moosehead drink up after the game. <laughs> so that's the first thing I think of when I think of Scott Metcalf. Uh, I think of a guy that also, so many of the guys, and, and you said, Neil, the cosmic thing? Mm-hmm. Scott Metcalf's drafted by the Edmonton Oilers in 1985. Try cracking that lineup, right, right? right? So what if he would have been drafted by, I don't know, the Minnesota North Stars? Maybe he would have played a lot more in the NHL, but he tried cracking the Oilers up front in 1985. So uh, I think that, that's what I think of when I think Scott Metcalf.
0: Uh, I bring this next man up because I the quote is is another that this actually really stood out with me probably more than any and it was uh, about the artistic impression really Les Kozak describes the color of the jerseys and the stands being all yes. charcoal and I thought, wow, like what a thing to think about for a guy that had one goal. Um, I know but Les Kozak.
2: So yeah, Les Kozak when I hear that quote, I think of those great old pictures in those big hockey books you see of the old crowds, right, Mm -hmm. say, in the gardens or the Montreal Forum. Les Kozak, one of the most incredible hockey stories I've ever heard. Uh, I don't know of anyone these days who passes up their final year of junior to become a priest. (laughs) Their team wins the Memorial Cup. Then you go, I don't want to be a priest. You sign a pro hockey deal. You score a goal for the Leafs. A uh, few games later, in the uh, you get your head crushed, you almost die, you have a golf ball-sized hole in your head, and you become a world-renowned scientist. That story, Les Kozak is just like, a mind-boggling story to me. That's a, a like you just kind of open your eyes and go, whoa, that's Les Kozak.
0: And and the last person I'll mention before Nate uh, jumps on with another question is uh, the person the book was dedicated to. Um, you yeah. know Bob Warner who passed away before the publication of this book
2: Bob Warner much beloved guy down in the Halifax area worked at the Ashburn Golf Club for years um, was so thrilled to have him in the book and then yeah kind of right before we went to print he passed quickly so I was honored to dedicate the book to Bob he's in the St. Mary's University Hall of Fame um, and uh, yeah was, uh, he was quite forward to, looking forward to reading it to us uh, that was uh, that was just a
1: little sad when he passed away. Yeah, and since we can connect everything to everything, uh, I mean, uh, my when I think of Saint Mary's University in hockey, I think of uh, Brett Gibson, who a guy from Gananoque who starred there in the early 2000s. Is now the since we can always connect everything to Kingston, the coach at Queens. Yeah. And then you mentioned uh, Oilers Oilers pick, picks from that era when the Oilers basically drafted 21st overall every year. Another one was Peter Soberlack who never got to the NHL because of injuries, but. Did, uh, oh, wow. Is now a mental skills coach for the Camloops Blazers, similar to there you go. And was, uh, what was, Jason uh, Padolans doing.
2: Is Trevor Steinberg from Kingston or Cornwall?
1: Ah, uh, no, somewhere Trevor Steinberg there. is from Moscow, Ontario, which is up somewhere north of Napanee. Yeah, but yeah, Steiny's from that area too.
2: That's the area. That's the area. Yeah, my cousin lives in Napanee. Steinie's a beauty, man. I, I first met Steiny when uh, I was play-by-play guy in the Maritime Junior A Hockey League, and Steiny coached uh, East Hand. So. He's doing well now, scouting for the Kraken. Scouting a oh. scouting gig with the Kraken, so
1: oh. way to go, Stiney. And not the not the only uh, former uh, university hockey coach doing that. They also hired uh, Chris McDonald as this amateur scout, and he was the coach at Queens when uh, the play-by-play no play and? and color commentator team on the radio were a couple of miscreants named Neil Acharya and uh, Nate Sager.
2: <laughs> wow, and they have went on to greatness, too. And keep your <laughs> eyes open for Stiney's son, who I believe is playing at Cornell.
1: Oh, nice. Now, yep. now. Now I was supposed to Wondering, you know, Sportsnet these days, you're doing a you know, a segment that covers cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder, yeah. you know, obviously right now everyone's getting really creative with ways to, fit, you know, fill the show. And there's a lack of live sports. How how much do you hope, or how hopeful are you that there's still a, a place for that when the NHL gets playing again and everyone's playing a full get ske- full schedule?
2: Yeah, I think like you mean for getting hockey card content on the shows
1: and stuff like that. Yeah, the, the stuff I that's think- really the character of the game, I guess
2: yeah i think once the games start up again um we'll get back into the flow of things as per usual but i do hope uh that that and i trust that creative side and everyone will stay alive because we have had to find ways to fill our time but man i just hope come january 15th we're back talking about getting pucks in deep again and (laughs) no escrow and cba uh i miss i miss doing hockey highlights man i miss watching games every night i love the game and Oh uh, it's just enough. Let's get her going, but um uh, first and foremost, I hope we're all healthy and when that vaccine shows up at my door, I'm gonna funnel it. Remember <laughs> how I used to funnel beer back in the day? <laughs> I'm doing that. I can't wait for that stuff to
1: arrive now- what is your cart- cart- what is the count now for your for your card collection? Last I read it was forty thousand.
2: Yeah, I got way too many. You know what? I just had to find a card right before you guys called and i I'm saying to my wife, I've got to organize these things. It's a mess. Uh, I'd say 50000 50000 yeah, in that range, Nate. And uh, the cards have gone nuts in the last year, but since this pandemic started up insane, uh, the amount of people who've contacted me with DraftKey Rockies thinking they're millionaires is nuts. Uh, I'm breaking a lot of hearts. <laughs> saying, no, see that giant crease? That's going to impact the price. So, well, But it's wild, and I'm glad to see... People back into card collecting. There's stuff selling now, and Neil, you know this to your brother. There's stuff <laughs> selling now that I thought would never sell again in the history of mankind. So, well, good on people if they want to collect it.
0: That I was. I'm going to move this question up. I was going to end with this, but I will make this one of my final questions. I'll move it up, and that is. The Gretzky grade ten rookie, one of only two grade ten level uh, Gretzky rookies in existence, just became the first hockey card to break a million dollars in auction. Yeah. That happened three days ago on December eleventh, uh, and I think it's known as the Great One of Two. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, is that one of the cards you were you're just just, just talking about, or just referring to? Like, shocked to see going for sale?
2: No, okay. no. I, I think cards like a Gretzky, a Bobby Orr rookie, a Gordie Howe. A Maurice Richard, old ones will always retain value. The stuff I'm shocked to see selling is stuff from the 1980s and 1990s mm. that we deemed to not have much value. Oh, okay. Uh, in the last 20 years, like boxes of 1990 Upper Deck are selling for 40 bucks. Well, you could have bought one two years ago for five dollars, and somebody probably would have high fived you and <laughs> done your lawn that you bought it off them as well. I mean, you couldn't give this stuff away, but it's amazing, and I'm glad because. Um, With the game not on, people are finding a way to connect to the game. Uh, But basketball cards are going insane. Baseball cards are going insane. So I think a lot of people are looking at it as an investment vehicle, which a lot of people obviously looked at it that way in 1990. Turned out well for some, not for most. But if you want to collect, collect and collect what you want. If you like something that others deem absolutely worthless, if you like it, go for it because something – this is my message to card collectors – something is only worth what someone will pay for it. So <laughs> there you
0: go. Well, you you have some listeners out there that maybe casual card collectors now going to dust off their their collection sure. that they thought was bunk stuff. Um, well, since we were talking about Gretzky, um, and we know your love of Gretzky, and you did have his hockey card story, which is now of that rookie card, which is now in Hockey Card Stories 2, uh, which has come to fame because of that that auction that happened and the record-setting price for a hockey card. I want to ask you, in terms of your next projects, I know, you, you know either you, you are going to keep it close to your vest or there isn't one at the current time. But what I was wondering is, what about a Wayne Gretzky fantasy camp uh, experience? I was wondering if you'd ever been part of that and if that could make a potential book for you, having this sportscaster live his dream, going to Gretzky's <laughs> fantasy camp.
2: I know Wayne used to have the fantasy camp. I don't think he does it uh, anymore. He might. I don't know. Okay. But uh, I think he shut her down. But my buddy Jimmy Jerome used to be the MC there. I, I always said to my buddy Craig Clark, if we ever win the million, we are going here <laughs> to fantasy camp. I would have gone. Uh, that would be a great book. Um, it would be great to know the guys who go to it. Why? Yes. They want to go to the Wayne Gretzky Fantasy Camp. I think that'd be fantastic. Um, yeah, but you know what? Uh, like it's like Kramer on Seinfeld when he went to the fantasy camp. No, you know, you, this is the last guy who goes needs to go to a fantasy camp. His whole life's a fantasy. <laughs> right. So I I feel very uh, like, and it's funny, you know, with that story in the Star, and it was in a bad spot for a long time, but I've come to realize that. Life's good now, this is it's pretty fantasy campy right now, you know, getting the right <laughs> books and call up hockey guys and talk to them about it and I get to go to games for free sometimes, you know with a media path that's pretty good so but I love the idea of a Wayne Gretzky fantasy camp book. maybe Lander should start it up again just so we can do that book. <laughs> I like it, yeah, yeah, that'd be good, but I know when you go to Mariola Muse fantasy camp, Colby's one of the players, so that'd be cool oh, okay, maybe I'll go to that one yeah. playing a line with the arm dog,
1: yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that that, yeah. that that would be his fantasy camp.
2: Yeah, that's right. I'd I feel bad for whoever's our center because as soon as we get the puck, we both just half-clap her into the corner,
1: just dump <laughs> yeah. and chase the whole time.
2: Yeah. <laughs> maybe it would be I, like, I'd dump it in soft, right, so he could line somebody up.
1: Maybe it'd be like the old 70s Habs, like Lafleur and Shutt were the wings, and they called them the donut line because they had no center because Scotty Bowman it's, just... You know, plugged and played, whoever?
2: Yeah, yeah. Whoever got plugged and played with us wouldn't be too happy. (laughs) Uh, Our Corsi wouldn't be good, right? Because as Uh, soon as we get the puck, we just dump her in.
1: I'm trying to actually get a Jim Corsi, uh, Quebec Nordiques throwback jersey. So,
2: oh wow, that'd be wild! My brother's that'd trying to.
1: Wild. My brother is working on that. Now you are a, like a the hockey purist, but I don't think you necessarily live in the past. How would you sort of define your your relationship status with the NHL game as it's played these days? We've, we've kind of touched on that a little through this conversation.
2: Well, oh, thank you for not thinking I live in the past. I <laughs> certainly think I do. Um, I think the game's uh, well. I think the game's overcoached, but I think every sport is overcoached now. Um, I think the game is, and I hate to say this, but too fast. I'd love to see the red line back in. But I think the players have never, ever, ever been as skilled as they are now. It's disgusting what kids can do with the puck. Um, the amount of skill they have is is off the charts. Um, but there's, you know, like the thing about hockey for me is I always want to see it get better, and that's because I love the game so much. Like I can go to a, you know, golf tournament just watch it. Right? And I'm not thinking, well, what's that club made of? Like when I go to a hockey, you know, when I go to hockey, I'm kind of analyzing it. But no, I, I, love, I love high offense, high hitting, the odd scrap. So if you give me a game like that, I'm happy. I think uh, sometimes it's a little too passive. There's not enough hitting. But there's not enough room either, right? Because the guys are so, so fast. So right. the fact that guys can think on their feet in the game now is absolutely incredible to me. So when you watch the super skilled guys, and they're slowing this game down that to me is mind-boggling
0: uh, i'm gonna i'm gonna close by asking you um again oh uh, wait guys
2: oh, my wife's trying to be quiet here in the background should i talk about her on the air oh sure. she's all embarrassed she's running out of the room okay there <laughs> she goes <laughs>
0: um i, I want to ask you about uh again the acknowledgements and we talked about steve Fellon, but you also mentioned brendan dunlop who will have a book coming out about Dwayne yeah. D. Rosario, uh, which we'll be sure to include uh, next season. Um, what do you know about that project? Did did, did did you know he was a writer?
2: Yeah, I th- I've been told uh, that Brendan's one of the best writers. That uh, somebody I know who thinks very highly of writers has seen yeah. in a long time. Uh, the timing is great with Rowe just named to the MLS top twenty-five all-time. I hope that book resonates with uh, with young soccer players and. I mean, I can't think of a lot of books on Canadian soccer players, so I think it's fantastic that it's getting published and they're writing something out there that, that hasn't really been written before. So Absolutely. I think Dwayne's got a great story, and I think Brennan's the perfect guy to, to talk about it because he's so passionate about uh, about soccer, and he makes fun of me because my little guy loves soccer, right? Uh, he thinks my little guy's going to ru- grow up to be Canadian messy, and, and I'll be <laughs> bragging him to play hockey, so... <laughs> He, he gets a good kick out of that. But, no, I'm looking forward to that book. It's also from ECW.
0: Uh-huh. Well, you know what, Ken? Um, thank you for for joining us today. Um, is there anything you'd like to add or, or anything that we haven't asked you before we let you go?
2: No, I just I enjoy the, your guys' passion for books and hockey books in particular. Just I think it's good that we're still talking about them and getting them out there for people because there are some wonderful stories in the game. There's some serious stories in the game, too uh all kinds of journalists out there that approach different aspects of the game and uh if you don't pick up my hockey book please pick up someone else's and just support writers and if you can pick it up at your local bookstore Please Absolutely. do, because we need those We need those stores.
0: I, I'm sure they will be, Ken. Uh, Ken is modest, but these is I think it's six titles now he has out, and uh, obviously Hockey Card Stories is the the biggest and the most popular, but they're all well-loved. And, uh, yeah, go ahead Thanks and grab it you. out there. And yeah, thank you, Ken. Six,
1: six titles, same as Jordan and same as Tom Brady.
2: Oh. <laughs> yeah, this yeah is so, the salaries it's... are a little different, though,
1: aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> a little, a little, slightly. Thank you, Ken. Yeah,
2: slightly. Thanks, boys. Merry Christmas.
1: Merry Merry Christmas. Thank you. Happy holiday. So, this episode puts a bow on Season 4 of Sports Lit. Hope everyone's enjoyed it. Our guests and listeners have our gratitude. Uh, Neil and me, we believe we're providing a way to honor authors and their work and, I guess, offer unique insight on the sports geist as it stands here in the uh, first year of a new decade. We appreciate everyone's trust and their investment of time. Now, I don't want to trivialize lives lost, people who got sick, people who are sick, all the people who are scared right now by saying, oh, look, Sports Lit had this good year during the COVID-19 pandemic. That's hella insensitive. But it is true that this year uh, Sports Lit had a personal best in both the number of episodes we put out and hopefully the quality of those episodes. And we want you to know that we're proud of our effort and of staying true to what Neil and me imagined about, I guess, three and a half years ago when we brainstormed about what format and subject would work for a podcast that conveyed our sports sensibilities? Uh, you know, speaking now only for myself, you know, sportslets definitely provided the creative outlet I've needed during this difficult time. Uh, for those who don't know my background, uh, and I wouldn't expect you to, I you know I was I go I was almost sports writer famous for a bit during I guess a six and a half year span from early 2010 to. Late 2016, basically from the Vancouver Olympics to the Rio Olympics, when I was able to be self-employed as a sports writer in Canada, without covering the National Hockey League. Not many people, I guess, not many people have done that. Uh, most aren't foolish enough to try. Uh, they got more common sense than me. But, you know, when the opportunities to get paid to go to an arena or a stadium dried up, you know, that sort of, you know, led to, I guess, a moment of clarity where I realized being in those settings sometimes was kind of a trigger to for depressive and anxious uh, periods. Uh, I would put all this pressure on myself to, you know, to write the perfect lead, ask the perfect question, and it just felt like you know, as they say, perfection's the enemy of good. And it just felt like the work plateaued. And I already always, you know, felt uneasy and had doubts going into that, the sports realm, because I always felt like an outsider. I, I'm not an athlete. <laughs> so I would just be so anxious while I was at a game or an event. And oftentimes afterwards, I would fall into a low mood because, oh, it didn't go as well as it could have gone, even though it probably did go okay. And two, this is also the longest possible time before I get to do all this again. So, you know, I took a walk in the snow like P.E. Trudeau, worst rhyme ever, and uh, said, you know, note to self, you know, you, you need to pivot to some less public facing work. And and podcasting is, is a one way to do that. Something where you have a little exercise, a little more control over the editorial content. And, you know, all the love to the guy across from me at the end of there on the table, Neil Acharya, for, you know, putting up with me. <laughs> But that's you know, but doing this has you know allowed me to you know engage one of my interests and you know bought some time to rewire some my thinking and be present and just enjoy watching sports again. And I, ho- again, I hope for you the listener that that comes across that comes across when we sit down to talk to talk to people. We're having a lot of fun doing this. I think, I you know, I, I if I can speak for both of us, I would say that this is you know the something that Neil and I have wanted to do for a long time. We've been close friends for basically our entire adult lives, but this was the first thing we really, really got to do together once we were, you know, in the same general area in Southern Ontario. So speaking again for Sportslet, our hearts know that our hearts are full. You know, we had a lot of heart-to-hearts in the summer about how to proceed, you know, during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. We had just got some momentum, you know, Brian Barrard right before, you know, Brian Burrard came on with us, that was the first time an athlete came on. Uh, you know, and I have Roy McGregor, you know, favor us with, with an interview, that was pretty huge. So we just decided, you know, we, we got to go for it and record whilst well socially distance. Uh, you know, Neil and I do do this in the same room and speak to guests over the phone, but we're probably sitting a good, you know, 12 feet apart. We only unmask once we're behind the mics. Our, our only other contact is when we do a little postmortem as we walk together afterwards. Neil goes back to his flat, and I find my way back to mass transit. My glasses actually fog up fiercely when I'm masked outdoors, so basically Neil has to be my like eyes when I'm walking with him. You, you know, along with usually being my conscience. <laughs> And as if he doesn't, you know, pump my tires enough alri- already. So thanks in huge part to Neil networking to book the guests. We've managed to keep it going. You know, I got the easy job—just uh, read and prepare. We definitely expanded our depth of field this year with all the guests who graced us with their, you know, perspective. It's obviously been a long year for everyone, but we built some momentum, and we want you to know all of you have been part of that by, you know, listening, linking, liking, rating retweeting and subscribing and, you know, pretty pleased with uh, sugar on top, keep it up. (laughs) And our guests also deserve a shout out. Uh, Brian Berard, Angie Bilaro, Brian Burke, Roy McGregor, Jeff Perlman, Willie O'Ree, Ken Reed, Manon Realme, Paul Romanek, Serge Savard, Sammy Joe Small, Doug Smith, Al Strachan, Rick Vive and Rick Westhead. It's a pretty good group. So I can't wait for 2021 in our fifth season Uh, when we continue to book some big guests and start to see some face-to-face again. So closing, you know, stay safe, stay hopeful, and have the happiest holiday that you can in these circumstances.